Welcome back to the DC Yoga Podcast. I'm here at the Hyrick House in beautiful DuPont Circle, Washington, DC, with producer Panama. I'm your host, Chris Parkinson. And today we're here with Gopi Kinnikut. She is the owner of Bhakti Yoga DC, located at 928 Fifth Street Northwest. Bhakti Yoga is a studio that serves to empower individuals with conscious lifestyle practices, offering dynamic fluid vinyasa yoga, yin and restorative, mantra healing, meditation, kirtan, retreats, and philosophy delivered with an authentic spiritual community that serves to build deep and loving relationships. Gopi is a dynamic bhakti-infused yoga teacher who has developed her own unique teaching style. She organically creates and designs dynamic fluid yoga sequences infused with deep spirituality. In her classes, she incorporates mantras, breathwork, and kriyas to release untouched energy and prana. She bridges the philosophy of yoga and the authentic traditions coming from India, making them accessible to the modern 21st century yogi. Gopi leads national and international yoga retreats. She has been the head of an RYT 200-hour and 300-hour yoga teacher trainings. Gopi has trained extensively with Shiva Ray, Anna Forrest, Gary Kraftsaw, and is certified and trained in trauma-sensitive yoga. Gopi also lived in a bhakti yoga ashram for 10 years where she studied and taught Indian philosophy and mantra meditation. Gopi is certified in Thai yoga bodywork and Ayurveda bodywork, offering a vigorous herbal oil massage and deep relaxation head treatment called Vishesh. Beautiful. Um, you can find more about uh, her and the website at bhaktiyogadc.com. Uh, and they're also on Facebook. Uh, before we get going, because I know a lot of people don't listen all the way to the end. Tell us a little bit about the retreats you have coming up and the trainings you have coming up. Well, this fall, we have some opportunities for people to really dive in to healing, self-exploration. Um, the yoga retreat, which is one of our main offerings to our yoga community, is our pilgrimage to South India. Now, we really take people outside of their comfort zone but at the same time in the safety and uh, the luxury that they need to explore a different culture, a different tradition. We start off in Vrindavan, which is a holy pilgrimage place, um, birthplace of Krishna. Thousands of pilgrims gather there yearly. Beautiful place, chanting, festivity, color. It is a festival season when we go in November. We spend four days in Vrindavan, then we travel south. Uh, from Chennai, we go to Mahabalipuram. Monolithics, a size of this room with carvings of the ancient wisdom stories that are part of the yoga tradition. And you will see them thousands of years old carvings, beautiful. So it's, a, it's an incredible tourist location, but it's also very, very educational. Then we travel south, uh, further across south to Pondicherry, which is a little French kind of seaside town in India. <laughs> beautiful shopping, beautiful, calming, relaxed energy. And, by you can get a, and you can get a wicked baguette. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. I'm yet to find out. And then we go all the way, continued uh, across the south to two other places, Rameshwa and um, Sri Rangam. Sri Rangam is one of the largest temples that have a form of Krishna or Vishnu lying down sleeping in the form of like yoga nidra. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a pilgrimage town all centered around this one very beautiful South Indian temple. And South Indian architect is pretty spectacular, something to see. We also go to Rameshwar where the great epic story of Ram and Sita took place. And this is where Ram actually built the bridge to Sri Lanka 
um, the stories we will unravel in such a way that they live inside other people. They will, they will become a metaphor for us in our lives. But the people that live in these sacred towns, they actually embody something deeper. So these trips are really geared to teach people the culture, the tradition of yoga, to have an experience outside of the Western worldview of what yoga is. That sounds so, wonderful. That no, sounds lovely. So November 3rd to November 16th, two weeks. People say to me, they come to India, and then um, what they do in two weeks is almost what they would do in two months. The people they meet, we take them into inside experiences that they'll never have a chance if they're just traveling by their own. But yet they've got the comfort of a five-star hotel and the safety. Mm -hmm. And so we really facilitate the Western body and mind with a deep, off-the- road kind of experience mm -hmm. so that's that's our trip we hope some of you guys will come that sounds great that sounds really nice um so um so yeah i guess we um kind of can begin at the beginning um you've been doing yoga all your life or at least practicing yoga all your life or when did you start i would like to say that really depends on your definition of yoga doesn't i guess it depends on which life you're talking about right that yeah. also <laughs> for myself Bhakti yoga, which many people who are familiar understand that bhakti is a path of devotion and a path of mantra. And that is something that I've practiced all my life I was born into. And the richness of sacred sound and the richness of mantra has supported me in a lot of challenges in my life. Now, I lived in an ashram um, after going through some teenage struggles, extreme struggles and depression. I had mm -hmm. very strong depression as a teenager. I wanted to give my life to God. And that training in the ashram, I became a head priest where I would wake up very early, I would meditate, I would do the ritual and the puja. And I did some asana, mm -hmm. but it was more um, meditation and um, mantra and philosophy-based kind of uh, lifestyle and more of a monistic way of life. Mm -hmm. When I came to America, which was probably 15 years ago, 16 years ago, I realized the urgency that people were hungry. And I started seeing when I started going to take yoga in a regular yoga studio, what I was born into was something that people were hungry about. Chanting, meditation, Ayurveda, Gita studies, Yoga Sutra, everything that was just my lifestyle. So most people come into the spirituality through the physical practice. Mm -hmm. I actually ended up doing it the opposite way. <laughs> and then I ended up teaching in a, in a yoga studio in Saratoga Springs, upstate, upstate New York, meditation, mantra, Ayurveda, because that's what I was trained in. And in exchange, I ended up taking free classes. This was over 15 years ago. And the practice was very dynamic, and it helped me bridge my spiritual uh, understanding with more physical dimension and embodied dimension, which I felt was missing from living in the ashram. So they kind of served together, but then I realized I had an offering to the greater yoga community. And so that's when I was like, okay, the door's opening for me here. That mm -hmm. was, you know, back in Saratoga Springs, upstate New York, many years ago. And what was the, what was the first yoga class in the United States like for you? Were you like, what the hell is this stuff? Or was it no, like, I oh, actually, you, you were ready for it? I was, no, I wasn't ready for it, but I would say it was a very powerful experience. 
and there was a st uh, studio called Saratoga Yoga, and this British guy, I'm British originally, mm -hmm. uh, Indian British, um, owned the studio. So there was like a cultural a kinship. Um, so I went and took his classes, and I found myself, um, at times I would lie in Shavasana crying, and I didn't know why. And I was like, wow, this feels amazing. And when I first moved to America, self-confession here, I did suffer um, a real strong kind of undercurrent of my depression rising again, just moving from uh, the continent. You know, it's not a place that I, I had planned to move to, um, but it happened according to destiny's plans. Mm -hmm. So that, that depression was a struggle at that particular time. And the yoga helped my mind and my emotions in ways that I never conceived of. And coupling that with my spiritual practices, it was a tool that really helped me over a number of years keep the symptoms of depression and anxiety at bay, that I didn't have to go on medication. And from there, um, that's when I started realizing the power of the body as a portal to something greater. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's lovely. Um, did you, um, when you were first, when you first did the asana, like in India, when you were in the ashram, like what was the asana practice there? So just a slight correction. Yes. I didn't live in an ashram in India. Oh, okay. I lived in an ashram, an all-women's ashram, believe it or not, <laughs> in Belfast. Oh, wonderful. Northern Ireland. Oh, very cool. <laughs> and it was the only ashram that had a place that facilitated and empowered women in the Western culture. Mm -hmm. That was, you know, that's why I was drawn to it, because it was a very strong woman at the time. Um, I didn't do... I did my own yoga practice. I went to some classes outside. It was more Shivananda-based, very mm -hmm. gentle. As When I grew up, my mother used to do yoga, and I remember her um, in front of the TV, I don't know, in the 60s, mm -hmm. like lion's breath doing, sticking her tongue out, doing all these scary moves. Do you I remember was, who the teacher was though, for that? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. So I remember, and I, 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 so I remember seeing my mother doing yoga, and as I lived in the ashram, I wanted to keep healthy. So I did very small amount. Maybe every couple of weeks I'll do a practice or I'd go swim in or I'd do something just to keep my body healthy. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't the same as when I came to America and the intensity of the physical practice helped me feel sensation in my body to help me deal with certain trauma and uh, depression, like I'd said. Mm -hmm. So I felt, um, because I have a, a disposition that's very fiery mm -hmm. and very strong, um, it's not that although I've lived in an ashram and I've been exposed to mantra and meditation most of my life, that I'm a very 24-7 peaceful shanti person. Living in the West, we are bombarded constantly, physically, emotionally, energetically, where our disposition is completely thrown off. And even my childhood, my story, my narrative affected me. So I can't, it's not that I can wipe that clean. 
it was trying to create the bridge and the harmony between the two. And I think that is the continual journey is finding this whole harmony mm-hmm. of my physical, my emotional, my spiritual, bringing all elements to become a whole embodied experience, not that they're separated. Mm-hmm. And so the asana from the deep spiritual practice helped me embody my body and live the meditation. Not that the meditation like prayer for a lot of people is a separate practice. Mm-hmm. It has to become one. So the rigorous practice helped me get a lot of the mode of passion, the lot of intense energy that I embody out of my system so I could find that peace. So that was really an important lesson. So the actual the actual honest the actual asana let you let go of sort of for the the fire in other words that you were that you had, you had otherwise been kind of it was in your life. I see the body as a portal um to who you are. It is a vessel that or a machine that expresses your great wisdom or who you are in truth. And for a lot of us we're covered from that connection to our authentic intuitive power and our intuitive self. Mm-hmm. Um, the body can, what you do externally can cover and your consciousness can cover that. Yeah. Or you can utilize the physical and the external to cleanse and purify so that there is this greater transparency and harmony so the physical practice can be used in either way and i think that is something that strongly you see in the west in yoga it can cover people um, because they get so caught in the body and the physical poses the strength the form and they lose the the actual deeper understanding that the the tool or the uh, modality of yoga is actually just a tool to purify the body, to purify the mind, so that one can come to a greater awakened place. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where in the West we've gotten a little bit uh, disconnected. The physical practice is really emphasized. Um, And and as a spiritual practitioner, it's not that I say it's only the spiritual. I think the two of them, and I feel that this in my service as a yoga studio owner and a teacher, is to allow people to feel their physical body, to purify it. And a lot of the intensity that we face in the world is imposed on our mind and our physical body. So through that cleansing, mindful, deep, strong practice, Mm -hmm. we can shed layer if we utilize it in the correct way with correct sequencing, uh, correct language and correct breath, or we can use the same practice and it could cover the consciousness and it could cover your ability to understand who you are, depending on your intention and motivation. Yeah, I was. Um, there's a lot in the yoga literature. Um, I think maybe Vivekananda was one of the first people to say it, that, um, that yoga is just like a knife. Right. It's a tool and it can be used to, you know, spread your butter on your bread or it can be used to cut yourself like it's, you know, that's a classical Gita uh, saying. Yeah. I mean, a surgeon uses a knife to operate, to heal. A murderer uses it to kill. And really, it's it's the same in, in the yoga 
tradition. And I really feel strongly about allowing people to, to embrace their practice because they feel the need to embody their body. No problem. But let's take it further. Let's take it to the next level. Who are you? Let's take it so that you can really understand the, the layers of who you are and the greater self and the mind and how to control the mind. So, yeah, I do. Th- I feel that's my, my, my intention. Yeah. Now, is there, um, is there a specific lineage? I mean, because bhakti yoga is pretty massive, right? And we're talking about, like, I mean, it's even more massive than any kind of postural practice you could possibly imagine. Like, there's, you know, there's yin yoga, restorative yoga, whatever, like, compared to, like, bhakti yoga. that's It's a very minuscule So I would amount. definitely say, Chris, I infuse bhakti into a vinyasa flow. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, my classes are called Bhakti Vinyasa. Mm-hmm. So, um, Bhakti is a huge um, kind of limb within the great spiritual tradition. Not, and only I would say in the last five to seven years has Bhakti become, I would like to say, a buzzword in the yoga community from Bhakti Chai to Bhakti Yoga Pants. Uh, like you know it's just this like word that's flown around there yeah and for me who was born into this culture and this tradition and have dug deep into the roots of india people the sadhus and the saints and the sages will be shocked yeah to see how westerners are using the word bhakti so i felt this responsibility of reawakening conscious awareness to the inner dimensions of actually what bhakti is mm-hmm. but mixing it with the physical practice i would definitely say in the bhakti tradition their emphasis is mantra devotion ritual not asana oh, yeah. um but now that we have become asana or postural you know physical beings and we've taken yoga very seriously that way which is which is a blessing it's not bad but if we can bridge this we have an offering we mm-hmm. We've taken it deeper than even the Indians, the asana base. But I would definitely say to add in and to fuse in the spiritual elements um, continues the limbs of yoga. We have taken one limb of yoga, three verses from the whole yoga sutras. Right. That essentially essentially only mean to sit, right? Exactly. (laughs) Like how how you're sitting when you meditate, right? Exactly. And really... The asana was just to prepare the body to sit for 10 hours a day plus mm-hmm. with an erect spine and the breath to control the mind. So we've lost our way on this roadmap of what yoga is. And um, I do think, though, I don't want to criticize uh, yoga studios that may be form or uh, body-based because they are offering a service on the first tier of just allowing people to connect to their body. Um, And they're allowing this practice because it's such an old practice. There is a science behind it. If they know it or not, the way the breath works in relationship to the energy lines, in relationship to controlling the mind and releasing untrapped emotions. And I think some yoga teachers are aware of the science, some are not. But it doesn't matter. It's going to work. If I take an aspirin, it's going to work. If Whether I know or not the, you know what the aspirin does. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I see that the benefit of yoga has hit thousands of people's lives 
on all levels. And I get a lot of people coming to my yoga studio looking for deeper spiritual uh, connection in their practice, looking for intelligent sequencing, um, looking for the, I don't know, I would say, I'd like to say on the emotional level, the nourishment um, and the connection more on that emotional level, the way we teach mm -hmm. is, is, is less imposed and more reflective. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important, the reflective side of yoga and not the imposed that yoga has to look and feel like this, yeah. which is something that's definitely out there. Um, it's all about reflection because how can you connect to who you are unless you're in a reflective place? Mm -hmm. So yeah. I think, I think uh, I'm going to give you a, a delightful surprise here, Gopi. Um, I've interviewed at this point, I think almost every studio owner in Washington, D.C., or at least in Northwest Washington, D.C. Um, and uh, I can tell you that pretty much all of them said the same thing that you did. Not in exactly the same language, but they said, you know, it's really important to them to develop like community, right? Karma yoga. It's really important to um, teach uh, types of yoga that aren't about the physical exercise, that are all about uh, the union or unity, um, and that they want to make more offerings with that. Um, so we're getting there. Like we're, oh, we're getting wonderful. there. Like it, it is really kind of this balance between you know, because you have to make money to keep your yoga studio open. It's sort of this balance between you got to give people kind of what they're looking for and then you kind of got to slip it in and like get them, prepare them for like the real yoga. And I, I think we're moving in the right direction at least. That's wonderful to hear, yeah. Chris. I would like to say in our studio, we do offer mantra meditation and mindful meditation. And I just had a conversation with my manager come in the beginning of August we are planning to open up all meditation completely free. And this is because I feel in the tradition, nothing was ever paid for. It was always by goodwill, donation-based, or even um, the, the teacher and the disciple, right, uh, the student. It was an exchange where if money is placed as a forefront of expectancy, it minimizes the offering and the wisdom because that teacher becomes bored out. So I said, I don't want to get paid for any of the meditations. I want the space to open up that anybody off the street can come and take meditation. We'll support the business by the yoga, but this is going to be a spiritual community. And we have five, four or five meditation practices a week, mm -hmm. um, which is both you know 20 minutes or so of Vipassana mindfulness and then 20, 25 minutes of mantra and japa, secret sound. So people can kind of explore both elements in the meditation. And mantra is a very big part of our studio. Every Thursday we have a satsang. Again, it's open to the public for free. Yeah. It's a philosophy night mm -hmm. where we do kirtan in the beginning, mantra music. And um, people who've never experienced it, and even in every class, I would say 70% of my yoga teachers do a little mantra music at the beginning of class, mm -hmm. and I will do a little Dharma talk. Um, but then specifically on a Thursday night at 6.30, we have the uh, philosophy night where we do mm -hmm. chanting, uh, mantra music for like 20 minutes, and then we have a discussion on the yoga philosophy taken from the Gita, the sutras, um, a topic. We have different speakers mm -hmm. come in, 
And it's created such a beautiful community. And then once a month, we do a yoga lunch where we serve a beautiful, full, vegetarian, whole, organic meal. And it's it's prasad. It's sacred food that's been offered. I've heard these. Sanctified. I've heard these are epic. That that you actually cook for these, and that like that people will be like, I've heard Gopi's cooking at this time. Like we gotta be there next Sunday, right? the third of August. <laughs> we have our next next yoga lunch. It's yeah. scrambled tofu, a kale salad, and a vegan chocolate pudding. It's all vegan. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, it, people not only really enjoy the food, although so many people saying Gopi, you have to do a cookbook. But I really think they're enjoying each other's company. It's yeah. about community and finding that way. So in the fall, we'll start again every two weeks for the yoga lunch. In the summer, we drop to once a month. So. Yeah, I think I, I, I can't over, when I talk to people about yoga, I can't overstate how um, important some yoga studios are to certain aspects of the community. Um, for example, I have a pretty checkered past with like drug and alcohol abuse um, and yoga studios were a place that I could go to when I first started practicing yoga where not everybody was getting wasted. We weren't sitting around drinking beers, you know, like it was like a place where you could go and you could be yourself. And, you know, a- as you get older, right, I mean, these places exist when you're a kid, you can go anywhere and it's fine. Everybody's just running around like a maniac. But like as you grow older, like the only places we really have in a city to congregate are bars. Right? I mean, you, you walk down the street of like, you know, 14th Street at, you know, nine o'clock on a Saturday night and it's like bar, bar, bar. Like you, you have to go to a bar if you want to hang out with people your own age and want to have a conversation. And I think Yoda Studios provide an invaluable uh, space for that to create a community that's not focused in, you know, on alcohol and drugs. And it's actually based on non-judgment <clears throat> and acceptance, which is a beautiful way to build a community and a strong community. Mm-hmm. So that is definitely there. And I think that is a strong focus with some of the other offerings that we have at our studio, which, like I said, the philosophy, the yoga lunch, the meditation is is really bringing those like-minded people in. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would also say, you know, um, the other two elements that we, limbs of our yoga studio, um, that I feel is a little bit unique. We, we are working to create um, this yogi give back program um, where we're working, we're giving back into women's shelters. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're involved with three or four different women's shelters. Uh, We're negotiating with some organizations on the West Bank to teach trauma-sensitive yoga to the women out there. Mm -hmm. Um, We have um, part of this give back yoga, we had one of our members doing a greener and cleaner DC kind of uh, interconnect. He would connect us to other organizations. We'd get 10 or 15 people from our studio cleaning up DC. So I really think to live the practice, we're trying to incorporate uh, avenues where people can volunteer their time to give back. So if anyone out there is interested in that, that is something we're offering. And this fall, we're doing a... uh, Trauma Sensitive Teacher Training. Mm. Um, and the organization we're partnering with is BodyWise down in Baltimore, but they're coming out. They will, from that teacher training, and you don't have to be 200 hours certified, you can give back. They will place you in different trauma centers in D.C. and set you up to teach. Oh, wow. So it's a really great program. That is cool. Yeah, and we, we also have a two-week module, three-week module, weekends, sorry, weekends, on um, just pranayama which not many studios offer the healing 
therapeutic understanding of the breath, yeah. breath and movement, and how to apply pranayama for therapeutic needs and for emotional imbalances um, and mind balances. So that's another module that we have this for. And then the last one would be our Ayurveda. We have two modules on Ayurveda holistic healing. Um, one of our teachers is actually a trained practitioner. So myself and her are doing two modules. There'll be vegetarian cooking classes, mm -hmm. spice workshops, oil workshops, pranayama and Ayurveda. I mean, it's a really hands-on practical module. Right. So I, I'm really trying to bring these deeper elements of healing and uh, modalities that I, I feel not all studios have the resources to offer. That's a way, that's a great way to put it, actually, yeah. You know, they have the, like, yeah, that sounds great, but they don't have the resources. And because of my past training and some of the teachers I've trained with and my connections, I'm able to pull those resources, which I'm so grateful for because that's always been my meditation. Yeah. Um, so let's get a little bit more into some, uh, well, I first want to talk about um, mantra, and then I'd like to talk about pranayama. Mm -hmm. um, where do you begin with mantra? Um, like, is it, do you have to, uh, yeah, just where do you begin on mantra? Um, I don't think my mother's going to listen to this. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you a story about my mother. I love it. Do it. Um, maybe she will listen to it, but hey, she's in India now. My mother was born in a Jain tradition, which is very similar to Buddhism. Yeah. The theology is very similar to Buddhism, which is not a yogic Hindu-based culture. Um, well, maybe we go back to the very beginning with that, right? Where they Jain, don't, where Jain is, Jain, Jainism comes from, right? And where, exactly. And where it's like it arrives it's kind of at the same time, as I understand it, kind of arose at the same time as Buddhism did, as sort of a reform movement exactly. within like, yeah. But the story is very similar to the Buddha. Mm -hmm. I mean, it parallels extremely the same, and the theology is very, very similar. As to say this is more so that she had no formal address for God or for the divine. And when she came to um, England, she went through a very difficult, challenging time as a young lady by herself and with my father at certain times where she didn't know how to pray. It's a very kind of human instinct, but she was never taught who is God. Mm -hmm. And she told me many, many years later, she used to stand at a Hindu temple and listen to them chanting. And the only name that she remembered was Ram. So the only address and from the exposure of just standing at the door of a Hindu temple and watching them pray was Ram. So she told me when she was really sad and upset and depressed, she would just chant Ram, 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 Ram. She had no idea. She just found this sense of console and uh, comfort in the mantra. Six months later, she told me, then she met uh, bhakti yogis um, mm -hmm. and Krishna bhaktas where, they, uh, where she inquired from them about mantra and then she started to kind of practice the path of bhakti mm -hmm. through this these people that she had met but it was and i never forget that story because even if she didn't know the meaning fully it had effect on our heart yeah it had power had power and so i teach mantra meditation people have never chanted before i explain the meaning 
really it's the it's not just the vibration it is a sacred syllable sanskrit is sacred and it again sound is a portal it bridges the material with the spiritual mm-hmm. sound can also uh devolve your consciousness it can bring you right down if if the sound pollution and vibration is very negative it is said that sacred sound creates a spiritual oasis uh almost like a sacred space energetically around your aura around your consciousness and around your soul now mantras there are many many mantras um the main mantra within the bhakti tradition are different names of god mm-hmm. uh, or the divine that through the and i think this is very common in all traditions i've spoke to sufi mystics i've actually trained with some sufi mystics where i was chanting the names of allah and i was like dancing like a crazy woman yeah and i didn't feel any compromise from my own tradition to chant in the names of allah it was the same god for me and so you know within christianity there are you know uh, the rosary within buddhism so those names are very powerful they are an immediate like split second immediate accessibility to the sacred to the sound representation of god or the divine who manifests in that sacred sound you may or may not experience it but through the chanting you begin to feel this connection to something greater and it said that mantra actually cleanses the mirror of the heart from a lot of the old conditioning and awakens one to their original constitutional position of who they are mm-hmm. it's some days i tell people just feel the vibration feel the connection to who you are and your relationship with the divine when you bring the three together you will experience this uh kind of awakening and connection to the divine through the portal of mantra yeah right. i mean i use mantra in everything right and we may we may need a little bit of clarification for yeah. some people right because this is sort of different and i don't know about um I'm not sure about the um the Muslim tradition or um or the Judaist tradition or the or the Catholic tradition because there's there's mystics in all of those different traditions. Totally. Um but uh in general with the uh, Abrahamic religions, I like to call them. Um what we're doing is we're worshiping a god that's separate from us. Um and it's a little bit different when we're talking about bhakti yoga, right? Where it's, it's or in other words there's no sort of there, in my own mind right this is uh kind of the um you know either non-dualism or dualism right so in for example like the yoga sutras are talking about there actually is like it's a, it's a dualistic philosophy mm-hmm. but when you're talking about um uh when you're talking about um uh boy i've forgotten the name of it now and i'll get to it in a second um vedanta um, it's a uh, it's a non-dualistic, right? So it's more like we're we're seeing that we're all a part of this, you know, energy or a part of this uh, greater thing, um, and that's kind of what the yoga is designed to realize. Um, If you think about this word, this is a kind of buzzword. Yeah. Uh, Maya. Yeah. Okay. So many people have heard the word Maya. Illusion. Illusion. Yeah. But yeah. so what is so this will answer or kind of address what your um bring in forward yeah. okay 
What is Maya? Many people have different conceptions. Um, nothing is disconnected from its source. Even that which is so-called material is part of the energy of the divine. What is disconnected is our vision. And the Maya is that illusion. It's not the cop is Maya or the material object is Maya or the attachment to, you know, as they say, you know, wealth, um, relationships, etc. right? It's more of um, separating it from the source, meaning God, the creator, seeing that everything is part of that whole and is is should be used in the service um, in 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 the service of the whole in one sense that's the bhakti tradition but has a relationship with the with god with the divine and specifically i'm going to say chris in the bhakti tradition which makes it very unique mm-hmm. um and the difference is is that in the bhakti tradition there is this acceptance or awakening to God as a person um, and that we have a loving relationship. Um, It's not that, okay, there is, I am part and parcel of the whole, but I'm a separated part. It's not that at the time of death, I just merge. That's one theology within, you know, the two main limbs of, dualism and non-dualism as you were talking about mm-hmm. um but in the bhakti tradition it's very dualistic meaning i'm a separated part of the whole and that only when that separated part is is, is existing dualism right the two mm-hmm. can there be an exchange of love but there is as well but saying that in the bhakti tradition there's this sanskrit word called achinta beta beta tattva simultaneously one but different so i emphasize the difference but yet, the soul or the atma or who you are is still non-different in quality, not quantity, as the whole, the divine. So there, we are made up of that same divine element, but yet separated. So it's a, it's a concept of achinta beta beta tattva, simultaneously one and the same, but yet different. Because the differentiation, is, it sparks and ignites the fire of bhakti or love mm-hmm. and a relationship. And when you look in this world, everybody is looking for love. Everyone is seeking a relationship. And this is the inherent nature of the soul or who we are in seeking what we do in every single relationship. But we've forgotten this. What does it mean to have a loving relationship with the divine. Now, this is a scary concept. God's a person. Well, my understanding, some people would be like, I'm a bit scared of that concept because of the whole Christian theology, right? Mm-hmm. And the judgment. I mean, let's strip all that out and just explore who you are as a person first. And then seeing your desire, do we really strip away that from the source, that same element? Why not have both elements there that you can become one with that great energy, yet you can still maintain an individual loving relationship? Now, that's a that's a theology that 
that can create a little controversy, shall sure. we say. <laughs> sure. I love that. That's fantastic. <laughs> I, I'm sure like, you know, anybody who's listening just like, like hit pause for a second and was like, okay, I have two options here. First, I can like, just like think about this for a moment or I can just go back to like Netflix. <laughs> like, like I, like, this is like why I started this show, Panama. So that like we could talk about stuff like this. It, it really just jazzed me up to no end. I love it. But my job <clears throat> as a yoga teacher on the every day is allowing people the reflective space through breath yeah. and mindfulness and movement to start to explore who they are separate from their story to who they think they are. That's always changing. And once they start to see the quality and the beauty and the potency of who they are, then you can start to think about the whole. I mean, why try and pick out and understand who God is when you don't even know who you are? I mean, in one sense, my journey more is to awaken people's awareness to who they are separate from their story that they don't have to respond to their story to the narrative to the habits mm -hmm. that you have an ability to make your choices and create the change you want to see that's the whole idea of mindful movement right mindful mm -hmm. movement changing those movement patterns starting on the physical changing those movement patterns seeing your movement patterns seeing somebody not being able to do hanumanasana five years later doing four Hanumanasana. Mm -hmm. Pretty like, that could be like, wow, I never thought I'd get that. But if that happens on the physical, why not on the emotional? Why not on the mental? Why not on the spiritual? Of course. Don't limit ourselves. I always like to tell my like students that um, when you're doing poses like Hanumanasana or something, um, if you think that's hard, right, try practicing yoga. <laughs> Exactly. Right? Because like you could like honestly, you could sit with a strap on your back and like stretch your hamstring for eight hours a day for six weeks and you'd be able to do Hanumanasana, right? It's really not that difficult, right? But learning to look at yourself and love yourself, well, that's something else entirely, right? Interesting though. Uh you're right to say that if I'm gonna pause and add one little insert there. Yes do or it. no, because to really embody a full yoga posture from not being able to do Hanuman full splits to doing it, you have to go through that journey. And that journey is letting go of not gripping in the pose, not holding and struggling and pushing and fighting. And something in your mind mentally switches when you tune into the breath and allow the breath to simmer into the sensation that creates this release when that happens alchemically on the physical level, something shifts in the mind and in the, in the energetic body. That shift, seeing that shift happen to people, they don't know what's happening. I've seen it and they're like, it's not just the physical change. Then I see the mental and the emotional change. Because if you allow people, especially over a shorter period of time, to teach them how to let go, they're not just letting go of the gripping of the muscle and the tension they're letting go of something greater. Yeah. And that journey is letting go of the old story and actually being open to the possibility of their fullest potential that they never explored in their life because of their story. And mm -hmm. my job in, in, in my studio at Back to Yoga is even in, in a single class is awakening and inviting people to little steps of that journey then we offer the satsangs and the meditation that take people even deeper. Mm -hmm. And then through the mantra, it is a, 
a quick, it's like taking the elevator. Mm-hmm. Why take the stairs? Just take the elevator. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about India. <laughs> like, is there a certain place that you always go? Is Brindavan. There okay. And where is that? So Brindavan is an hour, um, an hour and a half from Agra, probably three hours from Delhi, west. I'm pretty sure it's west, northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, two main divine forms of uh, worshipful forms of divinity in India is Shiva and Krishna or mm-hmm. Vishnu. So Brindavan is the birthplace of Krishna. But the beauty of Brindavan is that nobody chants the names of Krishna. They chant the names of the divine feminine, mm-hmm. Sri Radha. Mm-hmm. So in Indian or uh, yoga theology, divinity is the embodiment of both male and female. And that female aspect is revered, especially in Bhakti. Bhakti is the almost the mystical side of Hinduism. Um, so Brindavan is the heart center of Bhakti, of that devotional aspect and the love that is the embodiment of the divine feminine, the potency of love. It is said that the divine feminine is the full potency and embodiment of pure love. And in Brindavan, they just chant the names of Radha. If the rickshaw driver's angry, he goes, Radhe, Radhe. If somebody is very happy, it's Radhe, Radhe, very sweetly. Everything is about Radha and everything's a celebration. And it's an interesting place because I take people there and they chant. My students end up chanting Radhe, Radhe. Then they go anywhere else in India and they're still going Radhe, Radhe and people are looking at them like crazy people because nowhere else in India do they chant the names of Radha, the divine Mm -hmm. feminine. She's not revered. She's not you know, uh, put on the forefront and only in Brindavan. Um, it's, a, it's a very mystical place where one is uh, unconsciously invited in to this sweet, loving, what does it mean to have a sweet, loving relationship in a very playful way with God, but very personal, what that means to you becomes revealed. Now, it looks different for me than it does the people that I bring. But everybody that I bring, they they leave Vrindavan. We're only there for three, four days. And they're like, wow, what happened there? Mm-hmm. I, I have no material words. Because materially, there's nothing beautiful. I mean, there's some beautiful temples. But architecturally, it's a very simple place. It's a village place. But it's the energy. It's a sacred place where it's a, it's a charged vortex of um, deep, loving spiritual energy that reveres the divine feminine, Mm -hmm. which is very unique, actually, very beautiful. Um, So I love Brindavan. It's a very mystical place where people have incredible spiritual experiences. And our trips, we do yoga every morning to keep the body and the mind healthy. We have sangha or like gatherings in the evening to help people understand and process. But you are... Like you go on pilgrimage, you might pass a tree, but I will stop at that tree and I will tell you the meaning of the tree and how powerful that tree is and why all the pilgrims are running around the tree and hugging the tree. <laughs> like, Why little- are the pilgrims running around the tree and hugging the tree? <laughs> I mean, I, I, would, I would be like, what the fuck is going on here? Like these people are hugging a tree. Now, I understand. Like, it, you know. I could I could see it out in Oregon somewhere because you're like, all right, don't chop down the tree. But like, I've seen it's something different. The trees are considered in Vrindavan very sacred. Yeah. Uh, they're great, great sages. 
that come back as trees to give blessings and they fulfill your desires. They're considered wish-fulfilling trees. So people walk around the trees, they bow to the trees and they make a wish to the trees. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's cool. And that's only in Vrindavan. Yeah. So you wouldn't have known that unless I said that. It's true. There's no <laughs> so doubt. So people will go there and um, unless they are taken by the hand and shown the different places and unraveling the different stories or leela. It is Krishna's playground, basically. Mm -hmm. There's many leela or stories that depict the loving connection of Krishna or God with his beloved. So that's why it's called, it's a portal to awaken one's own love. Mm -hmm. Because when you hear these stories of these loving connections that God has with his beloved, you're kind of like, wow, this happened here. I want some of that. And you get the blessings from that place mm -hmm. to awaken your own love journey. So Brindavan is that kind of vortex of Sri Radha, which is the embodiment of that love. And the expression of that love in interactions of relationships between the divine masculine and the feminine, Krishna or the divine and his beloved. It sounds like, you know, it sounds to me like when you go to India, you, you really have to just let go of any kind of preconceptions you have about religion and spirituality, right? We, you know, in the West, we love to dissect things down to its like essential elements. So now we know what's going on. And it seems to me like you, you just, you can't do that going over to India. Like it'd be impossible. You drive yourself mad trying to like put it all into like, you know, categories and trying to like catalog things and ideas. Even if and, you tried, it will break you down. Yeah. And rebuild you. I had a friend who came, one of my students, and he, you know, he came to Brindavan, and I don't I think he was more agnostic in his, you know, way of thinking. And I'm very open, and I just try and teach people, show them a different way of how people are living and an, ex and an experience. Then we went to Agra, and he shared at the end of the retreat, when he was in Agra, he was swimming in this beautiful swimming pool, a five-star hotel, and he pops out and he looks around and he just sees all these white-bellied Americans sitting in their sun chairs. And he's thinking, where is Vrindavan? Yeah. Like, it was so contrast that I didn't even have to say anything. The energy of Vrindavan taught him uh, this spontaneous kind of uh, expression of the heart. Spontaneous expression of the heart of love and um, expressing that in an emotional way for God. And yeah. it was like, we, we don't do that here. We don't do that here. It's not like, it's all reserved. Even religion's very reserved. Even in Hinduism, it's very reserved. Right. So Brindavan's very unique yeah. for this. Um, but then we explore the South as well. So usually when I do trips, I go to different places. North India, last time we did North and Rajasthan, the whole Rajasthan desert. This year we're going Brindavan because it's my favorite place mm -hmm. and then down south, okay? Um, and just seeing the north, northern embodiment of the spiritual culture, reflecting that to the southern expression is very different, but there is a thread of similarity. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Because from my own understanding, the like the history, the culture of like Northern India is vastly different from when we get down to the very Southern coast of India and the very Southern like Karelia and places like that. Like it's like in terms of like kingdoms, in terms of histories, like there's, 
there's very, very different. It's very, very different. I would say the southern mass of the southern people are a little bit more pious, believe it Is or that right? not. Yeah, uh, they're a little bit more cultured at the moment. Um, that's my experience. Other than Vrindavan and Varanasi, which is very north, mm -hmm. it's a Shaivite place. There's a few spiritual pockets up north, but um, the food's also very different as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, the south, um, I've spent a lot of time in the north. I've been south several times. The temple and the worship is also very different. Yeah. The architect and the way one enters. The mystical thing I've experienced about architect, which if you come to my studio, you will see these 400-year-old wooden carved doors. Yeah. And, and I believe in a throughway. It's that, that a gate. A yeah. gateway, yeah. right? Um, and to create transformation, right? So I've tried to implement that in my studio a little bit. In India, you will see um, the temple structure is very different the entrance way some temples now it, it i haven't been to all the places that we're going up into a few of the places that we're going this time i have two monks that travel with us by the way and they do all the groundwork they take care of us they saw all the hotels out money changing we travel to four or five different places in there you're not just going to india and sitting in one place right you are really experiencing many different places from the safety of you know it being organized and it's not just a tourist trip it is a pilgrimage it is a spiritual excursion mm -hmm. so in the temples are very different in the south but um like one place that had gone in udupi um there when you go to the altar you have to look for a tiny little window <laughs> yeah and you look under the altar and it's beautiful and you see this form of the divine. But the reason why they do that is because it's just you and the uh. divine. Nobody else. It's not as if there's thousands of people. Some temples create uh, little entranceways like, how would I say, little rooms that, that tunnel in. So you get this mental feeling of tunneling in and focusing so that when your consciousness arrives in taking darshan, which means to view or to see, when you see the sacred altar and the forms of divinity, you actually see. Mm -hmm. So architect has really been used to uh, awaken devotion, to help focus. And you can see that reflected in the south differently than the north. In the north, it's... Um, they don't do that much stone in the in the south. They do a lot more stone work. Mm -hmm. In the north, it's more wooden carvings. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure why so much, um, but I it mean, is beautiful uh, seeing the difference. The way I under, the way I understand it is that there's um, in the north that we have. Well, we have at the very beginning, back when the Vedas were being written, you know, in 2000, 3000 BC, we have a culture based in the Indus River va Valley situation mm -hmm. or situation <laughs> civilization, um, and that dries up and people migrate over to the um, uh, over to the Ganges, right? And that sort of becomes the Ganges civilization. All the while, there's another civilization down at the bottom of India that's 
totally different. That's doing different things. And then once that situation moves over to the Ganges, they start to interact with each other. And then like throughout history, like you'd imagine there's invasions and there's like, there's whole empires, there's half empires, there's broken up empires, but that there's still sort of like a, a very, a very different cultures, not cultures. I don't know if that's the, that's the right word, like very different areas than the Ganges river. And then the, and then the very South. Yeah. The Ganges does create that division. It is the Ganges is beautiful, uh, especially if you go up to Himalayas. That's that's where I'm sort of thinking about doing my 300 hour teacher training up there. Yeah. Rishikesh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So. Yeah, right. it's a mystical place. Is is the Ganga? If you go further up, so if you ever do go, go further up to Dave Prayag or take a ride, two day ride, and go towards the source of the Ganga. The most beautiful, cleanest, and you feel her power. Mm -hmm. You feel her power of, of the sacred water, and she's revered to heal. Like, we have no idea, but I, I guarantee you, when you go up north, especially past Rishikesh, mm -hmm. um, mystical, beautiful mountain land. I love it up there. It's lovely. Yeah. Um, we talked a little bit about um, text earlier. Any kind of, for the yoga student out there, yoga teacher, whoever, like, is there something beyond like the yoga sutras or the Gita that you would recommend um, or a website or podcast or like anything that can um, maybe be a, a more of an intro or, or further study? Um, we had a very special monk visit us and his name's Radhana Swami. He's an international traveling monk Swami. Um, He's done a lot in Mumbai, has a complete eco-village, feeds like 5,000 children in the slums of Mumbai. He's written some incredible books. Uh, one is called The Journey Home and the other one is called The Journey Within. Now, The Journey Within is more great summary, easy digestible of um, the very common questions that people ask based on yoga philosophy and Bhakti tradition, specifically in the Bhakti tradition. Um, he's an incredible man of wisdom and insight, a very big inspiration for myself. And, and behind our studio, we actually did a Dharma talk in May. Uh, we had a full house. It was very beautiful. So I would definitely say The Journey, with, the journey Within mm -hmm. by Radhana Swami or The Journey Home, two wonderful books. Um, Bhagavad Gita is always... A time, timeless book. You know what they say? Book. Gandhi read it every day or parts of it every day of his life. Yeah, right? timeless book. <laughs> and, you know, if you want a really good uh, understanding of the history um, or the theology, uh, I would say they say it's mythology, but Indians would say it was truth, is the Mahabharata, where the Bhagavad Gita was spoken. So, yeah. And the Ramayana, the story of Ram and Sita, they're great story epics that have spiritual wisdom and they're easy to read. They're not like dense, heavy philosophy. Then there's Ishopanishads, which I always really enjoy. It's a small book, but it's very powerful. There's many Ishopanishads, but the first one mm -hmm. um, is also really nice. But I would really say when you're reading, seek discussions based on these topics. Like go and find out similar people asking similar questions. Our souls are nourished not just through a book, but sharing and living that. 
And that's where the community comes in, right? That's what we're trying to do with the meditation, with the satsang, the lunches, the yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, really come and, and see for yourself of creating that, being part of that. Uh, spiritual sangha, spiritual like-minded people who are a little bit inquiring about something more. Mm-hmm. That sounds lovely. <laughs> Um, well, thank you for coming in today, Gopi. Very grateful. I've really enjoyed being on the program. That was awesome to have you. Um, we're, uh, you've been listening to the DC Yoga Podcast. Uh, I'm Chris Parkinson, your host, and uh, we'll uh, talk to you next time. Take care.